Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hello and welcome to the Money Nerds podcast, where owning a calculator, budgeting your money, and having a net worth is actually cool. I'm your host, Whitney Hansen, and each week I'll be chatting with inspiring people to learn their secrets to financial success. Now let's dive into the show. Imagine making enough money where you can officially step aside from work and collect income, do a little bit of work here and there, but basically be retired. Now imagine having that happen to you when you were 27 years old. That is exactly what today's guest, Rachel Richards, was able to do. I think she is such a rock star, and it was so much fun learning from her. If you're not familiar with Rachel, at the age of 27, Rachel Richards quit her job and retired, living off of her $15,000 per month passive income. She's the best-selling author of Money, Honey, and Passive Income Aggressive Retirement. She built a real estate portfolio of 38 rental units by the age of 26. She is a former financial advisor and has been featured in CNN and Business Insider. By making the topic of money management fun, entertaining, and simple, Rachel has helped thousands of millennials work their way out of financial despair. We cover a ton of ground in this episode. Here's an overview of what you're going to learn. We go into detail about how Rachel has 40 doors and how she's starting to actually scale back on some of that today how fear has been a big driving force for Rachel in all of her decisions, why maintaining an assertive demeanor can be important for women in real estate, everything that led up to Rachel's first property and exactly the situation that came from that and how she was able to finance that property as well, how she stayed focused on her savings goals, how she used a seller's concession to make a renovation a reality, finding creative ways to make deals work, how Rachel leveraged her first property into even more properties, and most importantly, good questions to ask when you're searching for a lender. Now, this is a perspective of if you're trying to find a lender for real estate investing specifically, you definitely want to make sure you pay attention to that section. You guys are going to learn a ton. I know I definitely did. I thought it was such a fun conversation. I'm very excited to introduce you to my friend, Rachel Richards. Hello, hello. Welcome back to another episode today. I am joined by one of my friends, Rachel Richards. Rachel, thank you so much for hanging out. Yeah, thanks, Whitney. I'm excited. I am stoked to chat with you. So we initially connected and when I started to learn more about your story, I was like, holy crap, you are amazing. You've got so many cool pieces and so many amazing things going on in your life. Tell us a little bit about how you introduced yourself today. 
Thank you. I guess I'm a lot of things. <laughs> I'm a real estate investor and former financial advisor and bestselling author. Um, at one, So by the age of 26, my husband and I had built a real estate portfolio of almost 40 doors. Um, but today we've sold a lot of those and we're transitioning a lot of our equity and wealth into syndication, something even more passive because I'm all about that passive income. <laughs> Yeah. I love the syndications. Can you give everybody some context of what that actually means? Absolutely. So imagine an investor wants to purchase a $10 million apartment complex and doesn't have the money. They can form a syndication, which allows people like you and me to invest into that as a limited partner, which means we're not lending this investor our money. We're actually investing in the apartment as um, equity owners, which mm. means we are entitled to a share of the profits, a share of the cash flow, a share of the profits upon sale. So if we invest in this syndication as limited partners, we can get a quarterly or monthly cash flow distribution and again, profit upon sale. So in my opinion, it's the most passive way I have found to invest in real estate. Um, I couldn't do it starting out because I didn't have that much money and you typically need more money to to do something like this, but I'm, I'm able to do it now. And I really love it. To do syndications. Is there, do you have to be like an accredited investor in order to do this? Yeah, some of them you do. And so that's another thing we were not, I mean, when we started investing in real estate, in real estate, I would consider us nearly broke <laughs> when we started and we were not accredited investors. A lot of the syndications, you do need to be an accredited investor. Not all of them though. And a lot of them require a minimum investment of 25, 50, 75, a hundred grand. We oh, didn't wow. have that kind of money no. starting out. Yeah. So it's kind of something where I think later on in your real estate investing journey, uh, it's something we were able to start doing. And I'm certainly not going to make as much money as I did directly owning rental property, but that's fine because it's about passive income. And I don't care if I'm not making quite as much money. We're, we just value our time a lot more now and we can make less money now and it's fine. Yeah. Which I think is an awesome place to get to. And that's something that I think we all hope to aspire to at some point in our lives, but take us back a little ways. What was your entry point into the financial world? Well, I've been a money nerd my whole life. Yeah. <laughs> I literally, when I was in sixth grade, I went to the summer camp and I found this book called The Molly Fool's Guide for Teens, How to Have More Money Than Your Parents Ever Dreamed Of, something like that. And instead of playing with my friends and going down the water slides, I was literally reading this book by the pool. So total money nerd. That's when I started sixth grade, read all the finance books throughout <laughs> middle school and high school. <laughs> and I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad in high school, which was my first... Uh, it was the first thing that turned me on to real estate investing. So yes, I've been very much into personal finance for as long as I can remember. Were your, your parents, like, was this something that they instilled in you or is it, you're kind of this like black sheep of the family and they're like, I don't know where she gets it. <laughs> I, I would say the latter. I'm the yeah. black sheep. <laughs> um, the thing is my parents struggled with money. I grew up in a wealthy County, mm -hmm. very unrealistic bubble to grow up in. Sure. And to give you an idea, the kids in my high school, a lot of them, when they turned 16, got brand new BMWs. Um, yeah, it was crazy. I, on the other hand, my family was not even going out to eat at restaurants, yeah. let alone going on family trips. I mean, we were living paycheck to paycheck money for as long as I can remember money was always a stressor in my family. 
There was never enough, never enough to go around. By no means were we living in poverty. That wasn't it at all. But compared to my friends and the environment in which I was raised in this wealthy county, it felt like we were poor. Mm. And so I grew up frustrated with that. And I remember thinking that I didn't want to end up like people that I knew that were struggling with money. I didn't want to have to operate on a strict budget for the rest of my life. I didn't want to have to borrow money from family and friends to make it to my next paycheck. I wanted to be different. And something clicked at a pretty young age where I realized what I did then would either set me up for wealth or for poverty. And I took it seriously. I started reading everything I could. I became really inspired and really motivated and ambitious. Um, It was really out of fear. I think I had a fear of being financially dependent and ending up in the same shoes as my parents. And they say fear can be motivating or paralyzing. Luckily for me, it was motivating. And it's really the reason that I am where I am today. And I, I think fear still drives me today to continue to be ambitious. Really? That's interesting. Yeah. I think it's always going to be there. I've overcome it a lot. It's not like this urgent life or death thing, like how it used to feel, but I still think that there's this deep subconscious thing of that. I'll never be able to take the, my foot off the gas pedal because Mm. it's like, I, I, it's always, am I really financially independent? Even though it's with the numbers of, are of course, like, of course you are. <laughs> yes. But it's like, okay, I have to make sure I can take care of myself and all my family and all my friends and everyone's taken care of. It's so true. It's such a weird thing. I, I deal with that a lot myself too, of thinking like it's never quite enough. Yeah. And I wonder if it ever will be, if you ever get to a point where you feel like you can take your foot off the gas pedal, or if part of you just really enjoys that journey. Yeah. I wonder which it is. I don't know. I'm still very motivated, but I don't know what drives the motivation anymore. Sure. That's, that's totally fair. So then did you go off to college? I did. So I graduated from high school, uh, went to college. My parents were not able to help me pay for college at all, which was fine. Um, cause that helps motivate me to pay for college. Mm. So have you heard of Cutco cutlery, Cutco knives? Oh yes. Okay. <laughs> I paid my way through school selling Cutco knives. Stop it. <laughs> yes. Door to door? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. My mom was less than thrilled about the idea of me selling sharp objects to family and friends. To strangers too. <laughs> yeah. At age 18. But that's what I did. I sold Cutco. And I mean, it was a great experience. I love the organization. The things I learned, so valuable. And I graduated without debt. So that was a huge advantage that I had. Um when I graduated from college. So I went to school, I studied financial economics and then graduated and I became a financial advisor. Was That was my first job. Wow. Good yeah. for you. I got to go back to the door-to-door stuff. I always think this yeah. is so fascinating. <laughs> what were a couple takeaways that you really internalized from that experience? Um, definitely being able to handle rejection was one of them. Uh, any sales job that you have, that's a valuable lesson. Um, also just being able to ask for the sale, being able to market yourself and promote yourself and being confident in that. And that's something I still use to this day. Um, there's just different sales tactics and being confident and being assertive. And when you ask for the sale, being silent, you know, little things like Mm. that, that you learn, don't keep talking and keep rambling, ask for the sale and then be confident in your silence and let them think and give them the space. So lots of different techniques that 
I think I learned and I still utilize in my business to this day. Public speaking was a huge thing too. And it's a huge fear that I had that I was able to overcome as a young person. I think it's such a good skill set to have too, to be able to be a good public speaker, be articulate, especially at a young age too, and going into an industry where is a little intimidating to be younger. And so I'm really curious, did you feel any of that imposter syndrome when you were an advisor? Oh, absolutely. When do I not feel imposter syndrome? Legit, to this day, though, right? Honestly, every day, everything I've ever done, <laughs> every career, every product launch in this business, I have felt imposter syndrome. But yes, because here I am. And I graduated when I was 20 also. So I oh was especially gosh. young. Yeah. <laughs> I was especially young. So I started as a financial advisor and I was 21. And I'm telling people who are 60 and 70 who have, have their life savings... And they're sitting here looking at a 21-year-old woman t- telling them how to invest their money. Yeah. So it's hard. I mean, it was hard. And my customers were always very polite and respectful, but I could always sense that the skepticism. Mm-hmm. And of course, I mean, I can't blame them. I didn't have experience. So of course, um, there was never anything horribly unprofessional or untowards um, towards me in that job, but I did have other horrible experiences as a young woman in a career with emotionally abusive bosses, disrespectful bosses. I mean, I think that's just common as a young woman in any professional career, unfortunately. It's super crappy. I was in public accounting for a few years and definitely had my fair share of that too, where I look back now and I'm like, this would not fly today, even kind of, but the amount of crappiness that young women deal with in their career is it's outrageous. It's crazy. It's yeah. And you just, you think about it now and it's, it's unreal. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't ever imagine that you could ever be exposed to, to those things. No, it's, it's it happens all the time. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Sad. It breaks my heart too. So you are, yeah. how long were you an advisor for? Just a year because okay. even though I was good at sales, I am an introvert. Mm-hmm. And I, it was so emotionally and mentally draining for me. So I was like, I can't do this for the rest of my life. It just doesn't come naturally to me. But the passion for helping people with money was always there. That's always been my thing. So it was just, okay, this isn't the way, this isn't the avenue for me to do this. I have to figure out a different way to help people with money. So I only did that for a year. So what was that way? Like, what was your next step after leaving that field? Well, it took me a few years to figure out how to help people with money. So it was the book in 2017 that I first did, but it took me a while to get there. After I left financial advising, what did I do after that? I had a summer of crisis where I didn't know what to do with my life. And I went to Italy and I became an au pair. So that's a whole other story. (laughs) Um, But then I partnered with a real estate investor. I learned a lot about flipping houses then I worked as an administrative assistant for a real estate agent. Um, and then I got a job in corporate finance. And that's where I spent the last two or three years of my career up until I quit my job and became financially independent. Talk to me a little bit about how you teamed up with the real estate flipper. I always think this is so interesting. And if people can job shadow or work with them or be their assistant, I think they're going to learn so many good skills. But how did you get that first entry point? I, so I was in 
Italy as an au pair, which is a thing I did to kind of buy myself more time because I didn't know what to do. Yeah. But my goal was, okay, I was going to spend three months in Italy and I wasn't going to, I was going to come home with a job. I don't, it doesn't matter what job, if I was working at McDonald's fine, but I was going to come home with a job. So I was looking for positions and I found this job and it was this guy that I knew through high school and he was looking for somebody to come on as an assistant to help him with his flipping business. It was going to be a pay cut. I wasn't making a lot as a financial advisor anyway. So I was making $36,000. So, And one thing I'll say, because when people hear that I scaled a real estate business from zero to 38 doors in under three years, the first thing they assume is that I'm a trust fund baby. Totally. Totally. Yeah. I always, yes. I always say I'm not a trust fund baby and I never made six figures in a job or career ever in my life. Okay. When I started off after college, I started off making $36,000, then $32,000, then $42,000. So by no means did I have some income advantage or was I making a six figure income? I wasn't making a ton of money. Okay. So I took this position working for this flipper guy and I took a pay cut. I was coming home making less 32 grand, but I was like, you know what? I know I want to get in, into real estate investing. Mm-hmm. He's going to be paying me and I'm going to be learning a ton. And this is exactly what I want to do. I think I initially found it on Indeed or something, but I applied. I was so persistent. I probably annoyed the heck out of him. I Good. called him. I emailed him. I wrote this whole cover letter. Like there was no way he wasn't going to hire me. Based on, I was like, you have to hire me. I gave him no choice and he did. So that's how it worked out. <laughs> he probably appreciated it, honestly. Yes. Yes. Because I just hired a virtual assistant and a social media manager for my business. And the people that did stuff like that were the most impressive to me mm-hmm. because I could tell they wanted the job more than anybody else. And when you go above and beyond and you make, make sure you stand out like that, it's impressive to employers. So I highly recommend that. I love this. So how long were you working for the flipper? Um, about a year. Awesome. And then I moved on and I worked for the a realtor. Oh, cool. Okay. So you were yeah. always staying within real estate in some capacity, even throughout your corporate finance career, it sounds like. Corporate finance wasn't real estate. It was more a finance analyst position mm-hmm. at a global manufacturing company. But yeah, those two jobs were real estate related. That's awesome. Yeah. So between the two jobs, did that scare you from real estate or push you forward? I think it pushed me forward. The second one where I was working for a realtor, um, I was misled on what the position was supposed to be. She made it sound like I was going to be coming up with this whole real estate investing branch of her business and leading that whole thing and doing that. And then I was her assistant, her admin assistant and helping her do closings and transactions. And Um, it was frustrating because I remember thinking this is such a waste. I'm so overqualified for this yeah. and I'm being underpaid. And I know that sounds so entitled. I know it does, (laughs) but that's how I felt at the time. And it was so frustrating. And I felt like I have a financial economics degree. I should be making way more money. I should be blah, blah, blah. It's like such a reality check once you graduate college and you have these expectations and then you're not making as much money. So I remember feeling so frustrated in that. And this was also the emotionally abusive boss. She treated me like crap, made me cry all the time. So the whole thing was a nightmare. Yeah. Um, But I will say it is sometimes not until you have the hindsight or the retrospect that you're able to go back and connect the dots and realize how valuable the experience was and how it was such a necessary step in your path 
and how it led you to certain places. Because I did get a lot of experience in that job that helps me become a much better investor later. So it was a good thing. It ultimately was a good thing that I got that experience. It wasn't a waste of time, but in the moment and when I was there, it certainly didn't feel like that. No, it probably taught you too, like how not to be an asshole to people on your team. Like I'm sure that was a big takeaway. Like book 101, how everything not to do when it comes to being a manager, that's for sure. Yeah, it's so funny. (laughs) Management is interesting. And I'm curious too, as you progressed in your career in real estate investing, I know you have to manage people. Like there's no way that you can be a real estate investor and not have a team. Was that a difficult process to go through for you to like learn the skill sets to be a good manager or leader? Oh, a hundred percent. And it's still difficult. It's the hardest thing about my business is hiring people and training people and being a good manager. Um, Because I started off being way too trusting of people. When you're a landlord, I think that's very typical is that you have too much compassion and you're too trusting of people. And they say like, nothing like landlording will make you more cold hearted, more fast. And that's so true. I hate to say it. <laughs> such a bummer. It's so true. It's such a bummer. You're right. That's the best way to put it. Um, so you do have to have a very business mindset. You know, somebody, David Osborne, who's a big multimillionaire real estate person told me you cannot mix business with charity when it comes to real estate investing. And that's so true. You can be a very charitable person. You absolutely can be a charitable person. But when it comes to your real estate investing business, don't mix business with charity. Like if you want to be charitable, go do it, but do it outside of your business. Your business is not the place to be charitable and have compassion, period. That's just the way it has to be. Um, So that was a hard lesson for me to learn. And then in terms of managing people, I think because of my experience with that woman and how she treated me, I erred on the side of being way too trusting and way too forgiving. And it's something I still struggle with because when people make mistakes, it's fine when people make mistakes. Of course it's fine. No big deal. But when people make mistakes over and over and over again, that's when it's a problem. And I think I have an issue with being direct and saying, Hey, this is a problem. Let's get this fixed. I'm just too nice. So that's something I struggle with. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe. And I think, you know what, it's probably harder for women because we're taught to be, we're taught to be nice and to yep. not be assertive and to not be direct. And so that's also frustrating that we feel that way. It is frustrating. I'm curious too, when, when you were doing, cause you've done flips, you've done a little bit of everything at this point, right? Yeah. I, I feel like it. I don't know. I know. I'm like, I'm like thinking through, I'm like, I'm pretty sure you have. So when, I haven't done commercial. I've done mostly residential. Oh, yeah. Do you foresee yourself doing commercial anytime? I don't think so. I'm not interested in it. And what with what happened with COVID and commercial office spaces, like just being, I don't know, up in the air, I've, I'm scared of it. I don't blame you. My fiance, so Tony, I don't know if you've met Tony before. Mm-mm. I don't think you have. No, not yet. Um, he, his family growing up, all they did was commercial property, strip malls and that kind of stuff. And we recently were going through kind of a crappy situation I alluded to before we hit record with a contractor and just lawsuits and not fun stuff. And oh. Tony's dad legit pulls out a stack of papers, 200 something cases. He's like, oh yeah, these are all lawsuits from commercial property. After that, I'm like, oh dude, this is a totally different world. It's crazy. Oh my god, It's gosh. a nightmare. It's a no from me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I kind of feel that too, that I totally feel that. So as, as a female, did you ever experience 
any contractors, it's a very male dominated world or any type of real estate transactions where you felt like you weren't taken seriously as a female? I don't think so. Fortunately, I think I was really good at, I guess, faking it, you know, fake it till you make it. Sure. So, and here's the thing I would, especially with our first renovation that we did, it was the first property that we invested in. Mm. So I was more careful with that property than with any other property we've ever invested in. I would show up at the property every single day. They knew I was coming and I treated them well. I'd bring them Gatorades. I'd bring them bagels and stuff. Like they liked me. Um, but, and it's not like I knew anything about renovations or what the heck they were doing, but I think because I was showing up and I was asking questions and I was assertive, I was confident. I was not timid or anything. And I was just faking it. I didn't know what the heck was going on, but I think because of my demeanor, they took me seriously, I guess. Mm-hmm. So I think it was more about the, my demeanor and the way I presented myself and I, I kind of commanded respect, I guess, in a way from them. And so with that team in particular, I didn't have any issues with them. Um, so in, in the real estate investing world, I haven't had any, any weird stories with being a woman, thankfully. So that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's really, I think that's good feedback too, is a lot of times some of those limitations are not even gender specific. It can just be, like you said, your demeanor of how are you presenting yourself? Are you being assertive? Are you being direct? Are you following up? Like all of that stuff is probably a bigger factor. I could see that. Yeah. And I will say that going and collecting rent at some of our houses, because some of our houses, our tenants would pay rent and we would have a lockbox on site. I would never go as a single woman at night or whatever Mm -hmm. alone to collect rent. And so maybe that's, that's kind of a different thing. Like my husband would do that, or I would go with him because I, there were certain scenarios where I would, I would feel unsafe if I did that. Um, but I guess that's different than, you know, a contractor disrespecting me or, or whatever. Totally. Totally. Yeah. That makes sense. You mentioned your first property. Tell us about that property. Yes. Our first property was a duplex and we invested in that in 2017 in Louisville, Kentucky. It was a hundred thousand dollars. Um, there are still properties in 2021 that can be found for a hundred grand in the Midwest. I will say, uh, cause I know a lot of investors in California and high cost building places are like, well, you can't find properties for that cheap these days. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. If you look in the Midwest and if you get off the MLS and off of Zillow and you're willing to find creative ways to find off market deals, which is stuff that I teach, you absolutely can find cheap properties. So I get frustrated when I hear like investors complain that they aren't finding good deals because all they're doing is looking at the MLS. You can't do that. You have to be willing to do what others are not willing to do if you want to find the good deal. So that's my little rant. Okay. Rant over. Um, okay. So we found this duplex by looking at expired and canceled listings. And we had been looking for deals for months and months and months. So it was frustrating. So aspiring investors that are frustrated finding deals right there with you. We looked for nine months. We had made offers on properties. We had an accepted contract on another property that fell through. Mm. It was so discouraging. Everyone's first deal is discouraging. We had, we could have quit. We could have given up. We could have said, you know what? It works for other people. It just doesn't work for us. It's not meant to be. We've tried everything, yep. but we kept persevering. 
we didn't settle. We stayed patient. And that's the advice I would give to other people that are maybe feeling discouraged. Be patient. Don't settle. Don't give up. And we finally found this duplex and we made an offer on it. And we had the 20 grand saved. So people are like, well, where'd this 20 grand come from? Um, First of all, we both graduated without debt. Okay. So I did the Cutco thing. My husband, Andrew, it, uh, went to into the military. So he used his military benefits to graduate without debt as well. So we both didn't have student loan debt. And although we both started off not making six figures, um, we saved half of our income. So Whoa. even when I was, yeah, even when I was making 36 grand, I saved half of my income. Holy I was crap. Like, yeah, it was, it was scarce. It was very disciplined. I was living off something like $1,500 a month starting off. And I was not living with my parents. I was living on, on my you. own. That's impressive. Thank you. I was very frugal, very disciplined. And we lived in Louisville, Kentucky also. That's an affordable mm. place to live. It's not like we were living in Chicago or New York City or Washington, DC. So after a few years, we each had 10 grand of our own money saved. We pulled that together to get to our $20,000 down payment. And that's how we started. That's how we got that first duplex. Okay. I want to pause for a sec because this is so important. You said after a few years, you had enough money to buy your first property. So many people are so pissed at themselves because they don't have the money in one year or six months. And they're like, oh, I don't have it in six months. Like, this is terrible. I'm never going to get there. You were staying focused for years to get your first property. That's yes. incredible. How did you stay focused to save? Like, were, did you have any hacks or tips that kept you motivated? It w- I was just always good at um, staying focused on the long-term goal, right? Yeah. Instant versus delayed gratification. I was always really good at not giving into the instant gratification. Mm. And I was also okay with being the weirdo, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Being the <laughs> totally. oddball. I, like, I'm just good at being the weirdo. So my coworkers would go out to lunch. They'd be like, Rachel, do you want to come with us? I would always say yes. I never wanted to miss out on social events. Mm. So I would say yes, but I would eat my packed lunch beforehand. And then I would go and I would drink water nice. at lunch. And at first they were like, are you, you're not going to get anything. Like you're just going to sit there and drink water. And I'd be like, Oh, I ate beforehand or whatever. And if they ever asked, I would tell them the truth. Sometimes it was because I wanted to eat healthy and that was legitimately the truth. Yeah. Sometimes it was because I wanted to budget and I was just like, Oh, I'm just trying to save money. And if they thought it was weird, they kept it to themselves. Um, they never told me or never, never made me feel weird. And if people make you feel weird, time to get new friends. Okay. Sure. Time to get new. Don't go out with those coworkers anymore. Um, but after the first few times of that happening, they would just get used to it. And they knew that I would come to lunch and that I would drink water and I'd already eaten and it was fine. So I was just okay with that. You just have to be okay with that and not let your pride get in the way. And that's another thing I teach is like you have, again, you have to be willing to do what others are not if you want to live the lifestyle that others cannot live. Mm -hmm. So, you know, get a side hustle, deliver pizza on the weekends. Nothing, no job is beneath you. No side hustle is beneath you. Is it more important to you to save your pride or to achieve financial freedom? Like which one is more important to you? Some people, their pride is more important and that's fine. And that means maybe you're not going to get to achieve early retirement at a younger age, but, but know your priorities and don't be afraid to go after what you want. I love that. That's such good advice. I'm over here like preach sister. <laughs> like, I, <get> <laughs> I, I totally understand that. And I think there's, 
there's a lot of job shame. There's a lot of what will people think. And frankly, people are so focused on their own lives that they don't care what you're doing with yours. They don't even notice usually. Yeah, exactly. So you got your first duplex. Was this, so you paid a hundred thousand dollars. You put $20,000 down. Were, Were both the units like rented or were they empty? Like how did that work? One was rented and one needed a major renovation. What does that mean? It needed to be fully gutted. The foundation needed to be raised because it was sinking. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. It was like, for a beginner investor- It was the first property? (laughs) I'm like shocked that I went through with this. Yeah. I mean, it needed (laughs) new floors, new cabinets, new appliances, new windows, everything. It was an absolute disaster. So- Clearly, we didn't have the money for this renovation. We had the money for the down payment, but not a $15,000 renovation. Got it. So what we did, what did we initially do? Okay. Initially, we had made, we had agreed on like $85,000 or something. Oh, okay. So it was like listed for a hundred grand. We were like, we're, we'll pay you 85 grand. And the seller agreed to that. Then when we saw the amount of work that needed to be done, we did a seller's concession. Now, here, okay, here's the thing. This was in 2017. This is super gray, fuzzy area. And this isn't, you have to do this a more legit way these days. Okay. From what we did, you have to get like an escrow account and get the lender to agree and be on board with this. But what we did is we did a seller's concession for like $15,000. So we said, okay, instead of us paying you 85 grand, we'll pay you a hundred grand and you give us a $15,000 seller's concession at closing. So they're still getting the same amount overall. They're still basically mm-hmm. netting 85, but we are now getting 15 grand in cash at closing that we can use to pay for the renovation. Mm-hmm. And we're just getting a higher loan amount, which is fine. So the number still worked out. Does that make sense? So the yep, number totally. still worked out, but now we have the cash in hand so that we can pay for the renovation because otherwise the deal wouldn't have worked. And we told yeah. them that we were like, this is, you're still going to have the same amount but this is what it's going to take for the deal to work for us. That's fair. And in the market, yeah, we had the negotiating power because it's not the market wasn't like it is today. So they were willing to do that to make the deal work for us. Um, if you do that kind of seller's concession now, because that's a huge seller's concession, normally you have to do it and it has to be smaller than the amount of the closing costs. Mm-hmm. If it's more than the amount of the closing costs, you have to make sure the lender is approved and get this escrow account and it's this right. whole thing. We kind of did it like not in, I guess, the most legit way. Maybe I shouldn't say that on a podcast, but it worked (laughs) in 2017 and it was fine. Um, But that's how we were able to make the deal work. So here's the other thing is if you are going into an investment deal, don't write something off because there's a massive renovation and you don't have the money. There's always a way to make the deal work. Maybe you get creative. Maybe you loop a partner into the deal. Maybe you get a seller's concession, whatever. There's always a way to make the deal work. So don't Mm -hmm. back out of something if it's financially related because you could come up with something that's a win-win for both. And that's what we did. And it all worked out. How do you, how does one even, because I think it's, it's nice to know that you have options, but sometimes even exploring those options is very overwhelming. Like how do you even go about learning different creative ways to make the deal happen? I, that's a good point. I, I know that I was learning a lot on bigger pockets back then, and I still was today. Podcasts, books, but here's the best thing to do is make sure you are networking with people 
and surrounding yourself with people that can help you. Don't try to figure this out on your own if you don't have to. Like, Make sure you're in the local real estate investors association. And that way, if you have a question, you can literally turn to that group or go to the next event and be like, y'all, I need your help. What do you think I can do about this? Mm-hmm. Join meetups, You know, network with other people. Um, this is also, I've made mistakes of trying to figure things out on my own for too long instead of paying for help. Also, don't be a cheapskate here. Yeah. Pay for a coach, pay for a mentor, mentor, pay for a course to be in, or like learn from somebody who's done this and who's already 10 steps ahead of you. That's going to be the best use of your money starting out for sure. That's really good advice too. I think that we often overlook our existing resources and I mean, crap technology today, you can immediately find 10 different podcasts that will cover kind of what you're trying to do. So I think it's really a great way to go, but I love your point about not being a cheapskate. (laughs) Well, I say that because I have to listen to it too, because that's my flaw is that I'm too cheap and it's like, just pay for help because it's going to save you time and it's going to save you from making costly mistakes. It's so true. Okay. So you get your first property you are doing, did you guys do some of the renovations yourselves? No, we hired contractors. Nice. Um, I think that's a myth or like a limiting belief also that some aspiring investors have is that they think, oh, well, you have to be handy to be a real estate investor. Mm. No, you don't have to know anything about being handy or contracting or renovations or maintenance. Um, We didn't do any of the work. We hired all of it out. Neither my husband nor I know anything. Yeah. So just hire professionals. (laughs) Okay. I love that you said that because this is a limiting belief that I personally have of feeling like I have to do some of the cosmetic work when in reality, like my, my brain and my heart lie, like that they're not in alignment all the time. My head tells me that you really need to hire this stuff out because somebody's going to get it done faster. It's probably going to be better. And you can essentially get your, your property up and going sooner. But my heart's like, but DIY, like I'm going to save money. <laughs> so I yeah. love that you said this. <laughs> yeah. And you just build that into your numbers. You build in the total cost of the renovation. If the numbers work, they work. If they don't, they don't. Mm. Now, when you, when you had that property, how did you, did you know immediately it was going to be a good deal? Like each unit rented would have covered the cost plus some, like, how did you run that calculation? Yes. Yes. I've built out by this point, a really robust cash flow analyzer. So a book I recommend though, on, on how to analyze properties is, is hold by Steve Chater. Mm. It's one of the best books ever on rental property analysis. And so that's really good. Hold by Steve Chater. My cash flow analyzer is kind of roughly based on his, but it's built out over the years. And here's the thing we had analyzed hundreds of properties by the time we bought this one. Cause again, we'd been looking for nine months. So we had analyzed hundreds of properties, made offers on them, had an accepted contract. So by the time we found this one, I knew almost in an instant that it was good. I knew like with the 1% rule, because first I used the 1% rule to see, does this have potential? The 1% rule states that the monthly rent should be 1% of the list price. Mm -hmm. So on a hundred thousand deal, which this was listed for a hundred grand, the monthly rent should be $1,000 per month. Now, based on what I was seeing, I knew that this could rent for $1,400 a month easily. That's both sides. So, or not both sides, $700 per side. It's pretty so good. total 1400 a month. Yeah. So I was like, whoa, this overcomes the 1% rules. Like this is 
really well priced. I wonder why it's, I mean, it was well priced because it needed a huge renovation. I mean, that's why, but I was like, wow, that's amazing. So I knew immediately off the bat. And once I ran the numbers in detail, it just confirmed. I was like, we made it a very, very fast offer. Cause I knew it was such a good deal. That's incredible. So then you've got this place going. How did you leverage that, that initial investment into, I guess, more properties? Like what's that, mm. that growing pain, that very next property, was that difficult or was it fairly easy to do? In terms of kind of the motivation and emotionally, we were so eager after this first one, it really gave us the confidence because the first one, you're kind of like, is this going to work? Is this real? Then you get the first one. You're like, this is going to work. This is real. Let's go. And we were so thirsty for it. We were just ready to work our butts off and hustle and so eager. So it was just about how fast can we come up with this money? Mm-hmm. And it's so, it's so interesting. Cause if I knew then what I know now, we could have done this sooner. We could have done this faster. Not that it's anything to scoff at. We did it pretty well, I would say, but so you kick um, <laughs> yeah, it's nothing to complain about. Um, so what we did, we did a few things that helped us to scale quickly. First of all, we did not give into lifestyle creep. Oh, so this first, yeah, this first duplex was immediately cash flowing $500 per month in profit. Okay. That's 250 per door, which is exceptional. I mean, this is one of the best deals we ever did. It's so good. Now, at this point, we could have easily said, high five, we've done it, $500, let's live it up, let's get a new car, let's move into a bigger place, we've worked hard for this. But we didn't. We were like, this is just the beginning, let's stay disciplined. So we saved 100% of that $500 per month. We saved all of that and reinvested it and saved it for the next down payment. So that's what we did. We didn't give into lifestyle creep. We continued to stay disciplined and save 50% of our income. And by 2017, I think, I think that was the year that Andrew started to make six figures. I think he was making exactly a hundred thousand dollars. Nice. Yeah. So that was really great. Cause then, and then with my income on top of that, I forget how much it's making. I might've been still making 40 or 50 grand. But obviously saving half of our combined salary was a lot of money. So we were still seeing discipline with that. And then the real key for us that helped us to scale quickly is that I had my real estate license. Mm. I didn't have it to help clients buy and sell houses. I only had it for our own purposes for real estate investing. So every deal, we would fully deplete our savings. But then I would represent myself as the buyer's agent on the deal And therefore I would get paid. I would get a commission check at every closing. So on that first one, I think I got like two grand or something like that. Mm -hmm. But then on later on the bigger deals that we did, I would sometimes make eight, 10, $12,000 in commission, which would be, yes, it would be a huge chunk that we would save all of it for the next down payment. So between these three things, and then every time we bought a property, the cash flow, it would snowball. We would be picking up momentum. Between these three things, we were able to save 20% down payments one after the other. And that's how we were able to scale so quickly and buy these six buildings, 38 or 39 doors in three years. That's freaking incredible. Thanks. I love that. With this is always a hang up and you can tell like I don't do real estate investing yet. So this is so interesting to me, but when it comes to the financing piece, 
are lenders looking at this and saying, okay, Rachel and Andrew have experience as a landlord. They've been doing this for a year. This is now income. Like, How did the financing piece work? Did your income have to support being able to cover the costs on all of the places or like, like how to walk me through that. Okay. So this is where finding a lend a really good lender with flexibility is very important. Most lenders will only consider your W2 income mm-hmm. when it comes to whether you can take out a new mortgage, Yep, which hinders investors because they get to one or two rental properties and then lenders are like, oh, nope, you can't take out any more loans because they won't consider the rental income, right? which is really frustrating. So you have to find a small local lender. I definitely recommend like a small local bank, small local credit union. And sometimes you have to call 13 or 15 lenders in your area to find somebody who will work with you. We eventually were able to find a really great commercial lender who was able to consider the rental income on the properties we had collected so far to count towards our income. And that's why we were able to continue to get loans. So that, that piece is very essential to continue to get loans. That is such a good tip because that is, that's the stumbling block that even like when I've talked to lenders about doing additional properties, they're like, yeah, that's great. But your W2 income has to be more. And when you're self-employed, they're like, oh, and then you need all these extra layers too. I'm like, what, how are people doing this? Exactly. It just comes down to finding a, a lender who's who can work with you. Good tip. I really like that. So when you're shopping for a lender, which I hate saying that, but honestly, it's what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. When what types of questions are you are smart ones to ask them to see if they are on the same page? Uh, I would say how many investor clients do you work with versus clients that are just purchasing the property as their primary residence? What are your fees? What are the interest rates that you're offering? How quickly are you able to close on the loan? Like what's your average timeline? Um, A question I would definitely ask, how how would I word this? If hypothetically, if I were to quit claim deed the loan into an LLC, Mm. is that allowed? Or what what are your policies on that? That's a good question. (laughs) Yeah. Because you want to know if the lender is cool with that. Um, I could go into a lot more detail on why that's important, but that's important. And then are you able to count the rental income towards my like total income requirement in terms of being able to continue to get qualified for more loans? Perfect. Okay. Yeah. We're going to have to write those questions down for everybody listening in too. <laughs> okay. Talk to us about, you've got a couple books out there too. I presume at least one of your books covers a lot of this in detail. Which one would be the best one to start with for newbie real estate investors? Yes. So passive income, aggressive retirement talks about 28 different passive income streams because I'm all about passive income. So there's a section about real estate investing. So that's where I'd start if you're into real estate investing. That's so awesome. Okay. So now you, you scaled your business and now you are doing something where you hit a point where your income pretty much covered all of your lifestyle expenses and then some. So you hit that point at 27 years old. Incredible. Okay. Thank you. How did you know when you were to the point where you're like, all right, we're good. This isn't a fluke. This is legit. We're going to be all right. Well, it took a while for that to settle in because we hit that point. And then I kept working for like a year. (laughs) You did. Yeah. Yeah. So our initial goal was just to replace my full-time income. In 2018, I did get to the point where I was making 89 grand. So I had a big jump at one point. I was really excited, able to save a lot more money. 
And so we were like, okay, let's just replace my full-time income and then I'll quit my job. We did that by 2018, by the end of 2018. And so I was like, okay, I'll, I'll go ahead and quit. And then, oh my gosh, the fear, I couldn't do it. I couldn't go through with it. I was scared. I was like, no, this can't be real. What will my friends and family think of me? What am I going to say? We're not, we don't have enough money. So all these limiting beliefs and it's so scary. And also I was questioning myself because I was like, who am I to walk away from what could be a, a very potentially lucrative corporate finance career? Mm. So I have these two forks in the road and I'm like, which one, you know, this one that could be more secure, the corporate ladder benefits. So then it's like, then you question yourself. <laughs> then I have this other one that's definitely risky, but could be a lot more lucrative and rewarding also as an entrepreneur. So it was really, really difficult. And that next year, flipping back and forth was actually one of the most stressful in my life. And I have a lot of regret over not quitting sooner. Because mm-hmm. I think if I had just listened to my gut and I stopped questioning myself, I should have just quit sooner. So it was really stressful what I did to myself mentally and the flip-flopping that I did. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if anything, the mistake that business owners make is is probably quitting too soon. I think that a lot of a lot of advice given to entrepreneurs that I hate is, you know, take a leap of faith and the net will appear. I hate that. I do too. And so people are given this advice to just quit their job and go off on their own and it, and they don't have any monetization in place. They don't have any other income streams. And so they have nothing to fall back on. And it's take a leap of faith. Don't do that. <laughs> At least make sure your side hustle is monetized at least make sure you have other income streams to keep you afloat. So have some sort of goal, whether it's, okay, I'm going to monetize my side hustle so that I'm bringing in 3K a month or so that my living expenses are covered. Or maybe your goal is to get to half of your full-time income. Whatever it is, have some type of financial goal, get there and then quit your job. Now, my mistake was kind of going too far in the other direction. And I was making so much money and still afraid to quit my job. And caused myself a lot and a lot of stress. So that was definitely a difficult time. I did quit my job once we were making 10 grand a month in passive income, but that was like a full year later. Good job. So I just wish, yeah, thank you. I'm I'm proud of finally taking that step and I have not looked back once. (laughs) No, it is so scary. I remember the same thing when I went full-time in my business. And ironically, of course, like business is always great. And then the minute I jump ship and I'm like, okay, I can do it. My business income went down that month. I'm like, oh no, <laughs> like I was so stressed. Yeah. Then you second guess everything. What have I done? Like, I'm going to fail. Oh my God. <laughs> can uh, I get my job back now? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's crazy. But I like that you waited until you were financially ready. I think that's, that's really good advice for a lot of people too. And so with your passive income through real estate, you got up to like 15 grand a month in real estate, like passively. Like this is so awesome. How long did that take after you hit that 10K mark? Well, we got up to 15K a month in passive income, but not all from real estate. Oh, got it, got it. Yeah, okay. so we got to 10K in passive income all from real estate at one point. Which is great. And thank you. And now it's up. I don't know what it is specifically. It's over 20K a month in passive income, but it's all of our passive income streams combined. Real estate, um, like rental properties, syndications, book royalties, courses, fundraise, uh, all these other things. Yeah. Um, And the real estate piece of it has gone down because we've sold a lot of our rental properties this year. 
So it's kind of flip-flopped. Most of the passive income now is from books and online courses. That's so cool though. I like that you gave yourself the flexibility to be able to do that and to manage like more than just one thing. I think so many times too, whether it's real estate investing or starting your own business, coaching courses, whatever you decide, sometimes we get this like linear focus where we feel like that's the only way we should make money. Yeah. Yeah. I think the more income streams you have, the better. So I think if you can think in terms of income diversification, that is where true financial security comes from, right? We're, we're taught that having a W-2 salaried income equates to financial security. Yeah. That's not true because if you get laid off or your hours get cut or if you get fired, then what happens? Then your only source of income goes away. So there's nothing stable or secure about that. But if you can have income diversification, have multiple sources of income coming in, that is where financial security comes from. So for example, when COVID happened, we were bringing, when we, at this point, April, 2020, we were used to making $10,000 a month in passive profit from our rental properties. In April, 2020, we made $0 in profit from our rental properties. Oh my goodness. We didn't lose money. Thankfully we broke even that month. So we didn't, we didn't make money either. Wow. But the only reason I wasn't panicking and operating out of desperation that month is because we had multiple other passive income streams that month to keep us afloat. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's where financial security comes from. So I urge you all listening to think of what other passive income streams, or maybe not even passive income streams, what other income streams can you put into place so that if one falls off or if one goes away, you're going to have other income streams to keep you afloat. Yeah. That's really good advice too. I think they say the average millionaire seven income streams. Like, I don't yes. know how true that is, but right, right. it's still, it's like, it's always in the back of my head of like, okay, build all these legs up of your stool. Don't just rely on one thing. Totally. So with your business now, you are helping people, you're starting this syndication. Like, tell us about what you view as next for your financial life. Oh yeah. It's really exciting. I want to get invested definitely more in syndications. We sold those big buildings this year. So we have a lot of money sitting in cash and it's such a problem having money sitting in cash right now. It is it makes me panic every day. Um, yes. Inflation is happening. So it's like, where do you put money in the short run? That's just sitting there. It's minus sitting in a high yield savings account, which is driving me insane. Um, I think I've heard about I bonds being a a good place, but I have to do more research into that. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to get money invested into syndications as quickly as possible. And then I'm trying to put more money into my business, building a team out. I've been operating as a solopreneur for way too long and that's not the way. So I'm hiring people, um, trying to make my business more automated and as passive as possible as well. So just having fun, trying not to work too hard, although I'm a workaholic, so that'll never be possible for me. I totally am. But the thing, and I always remind myself, so I'm doing this because I want to, not because I have to. So it's like, this is optional. I don't have to work this hard, but I can't, sometimes I can't help it. <laughs> I get it. I totally get it. It, it is a really tricky thing. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your book, Money Honey. Money Honey is the book I wrote in 2017. And it is what started my whole business. It was a passion project for me at first. And the thing is, all my family and friends were asking me for financial advice because I used to be a financial advisor and that is what I love to do. So I was like, this is great. I love this. At the same time, I began to wonder, why aren't they 
reading books or learning and reading mm-hmm. websites, you know, all the things I, I used to do. And then I realized, oh yeah, personal finance is boring for most people, right? It's Super boring. overwhelming. It's complex. It's intimidating. No wonder people don't like to learn about it. So I thought to myself, how can I make this topic sassy and fun and simple? And that's where the idea for Money Honey came from. It was a passion project, something I just felt compelled to do. Not at all something I thought I would make money from. Hmm. So I wrote the book, self-published it in 2017. And to my shock, it just took off. It took off. It resonated with female millennials. It started selling word of mouth. It sold more and more every single month and every single year. It still sells more than it ever has to this day. And it has... I think it has over 1,100 Amazon reviews now. Um, yeah, it's it blows my mind. So, I mean, that's really what started my whole business was that book and realizing that I could talk about finance in this really fun, relatable way. So that's money, honey. It's just money management basics, but it's a lot of fun. <laughs> I love it. I think it's so great too. And Thank you. Everything that you've built up is... I'm really excited to see the syndication stuff. I think this is going to be fun to follow along and just see what your lessons learned were it's going to be a really awesome time. Is it like a one-year timeline? Is what? How long are you thinking for the first one? Syndication. So I'm not forming them. I'm not like the general partner or anything. I'm just investing in them as a limited partner. Um, most syndicate... Well, all the timelines are different. I would say most of them are five to 10-year timelines. They're pretty long. Oh, they're way longer than I thought. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Some of them are three years and that's nice. I mean, the shorter the timeline, the better because I like to get my money out of the deal quickly. But I'm also investing in the ones for cash flow. So I always make sure they have cash flow that's early on because then at least you're getting some money out of the deal as it goes. But yeah, the, a lot of them I would say are at least five years or more. Gotcha. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Good yeah. to know. So we're going to be following along. Where's the best place for people to hang out with you, to learn from you, all of the fun stuff? Yeah. Thank you. So my website is moneyhoneyrachel.com and my Instagram and TikTok uh, handles are money, honey, Rachel. And, um, what I'd love to do for your listeners is if anyone wants to download my passive income starter kit, I will give that for free. So you can, yes, you can go to moneyhoneyrachel.com forward slash passive income. Awesome. Thank you for that. That's very generous of you. Absolutely. Thank you. All right, my friend, before we officially part ways, are you down for some rapid fire questions? Always. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. Aside from your own book, what is one book you find yourself gifting most often? Oh, wow. There's too many to name. (laughs) (laughs) Depends on the problem. Um, Okay. I'm like obsessed with David Goggins. I'm a hardcore David Goggins fan. So Can't Hurt Me is one book I always talk about. And I'm always like, everyone should read this book. Oh, I love it. That is a phenomenal book too. Yeah. I yeah. like it. Okay. Next question for you. Let's pretend it's post COVID everywhere is open up. You can travel officially anywhere. Where's one location you're dying to travel to? Um, wherever Taylor Swift is having her next concert. <laughs> <laughs> That's so awesome. <laughs> I'm such a big Taylor Swift fan. <laughs> Have you spoke with JD Roth about this? Yes. Yes. Okay. I was just yes. saying, like, he's like obsessed with her too. And I love him for that. I love that he's outspoken about that. <laughs> he very much is. <laughs> he's the best. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay. Yeah. So next question for you. I'm personally obsessed with people's morning routines. So what is your current morning routine? Oh, great. Okay. Because the other book I was thinking about recommending was The Miracle Morning by Hal Elrod. 
So my morning routine, I'm not consistent with it, but when I am dealing with overwhelm or burnout or anxiety, I'll start doing the miracle morning, which means I I will do 20 or 30 minutes of reading affirmations, gratitude, and meditation. So I'll do those four things. And it's really nice. It's really peaceful. And it puts me in the best mood. It's just about starting your day intentionally and in a, in a positive way, instead of just rolling over and looking at your phone, which is what I do on the other mornings that I don't do that. (laughs) You and me both. What time do you typically wake up? Um, I don't set an alarm, which is the best part about being financially independent. Like the best is the number one thing that I love about being financially independent. Um, but I, I probably wake up at 6 30 AM most days on my own. So it's pretty yeah. good, but it's better than waking up at 6 30 AM to an alarm. It's just a mindset change. So it totally is totally is. <laughs> yeah. I like it. Okay. My next question for you is kind of a biggie in your opinion. What is the secret to financial success? Oh, I know, I know the answer to this. In my opinion, <laughs> the answer to this, what sets someone apart from being financially successful versus somebody who's not is the ability to take action. The ability to take action. That's all it is, right? There's the saying knowledge is power. That's not true. I disagree with that. Knowledge is not power or knowledge is only power. If you take action on it, if you implement it, I don't know how many of my readers might've read my book, Money, Honey, but haven't done anything with it. And I I do the same thing all the time. I don't know how many times I've looked up a workout routine or a diet and I don't do anything about it. Self-discipline is the hardest thing. So the people who are successful financially are able to execute on the knowledge that they have. That is what sets them apart. That is such a great way to end this conversation. Thank you so much for your time, for sharing all of your lessons learned as a real estate investor and a little bit about what's next for you. I think we're all excited to see how it all pans out. Yes. Thank you so much, Whitney. This was a lot of fun. All right. What'd you think? What were your biggest takeaways? I'd love to hear from you. Make sure you leave a five-star review and don't forget to follow this podcast. It means so much to me and it really does help the podcast get in front of more people if you rate and review. Like it's one of the greatest things you can do, the biggest compliments you can give a podcast. Thank you for that. And I hope that you have an enjoyable day and more than anything, I will see you on Friday for five tip Friday or next week for another episode of the money nerds podcast. Bye.